fast channels, TV service aggregators and connected TV complexity drove the conversation at the Stream TV show this week in Denver. Listen on to find out why the issues are so important to the industry. This week's edition of Inside the Stream. This is Will Richmond from Video News, and that was Colin Dixon at the top from End Screen Media. Hi there, Colin. How is everything? It's great. Well, I've just got back from the Stream TV show in Denver, Mile uh, High City, and boy, did I feel that altitude this time when I was there. Got pretty, pretty breathless on. Uh, on the second day, uh, but uh, but it was beautiful, beautiful weather there, and the conference was great. And we're actually going to spend a little bit of time talking about some of the themes that we saw there. Uh, but before we get to that, I think we've got a couple of news stories we want to mention. Yeah, well, um, first thing I want to just quickly mention is uh, Bruce Weishman from Weishman Research Group is going to be kicking off next week's Video News Connected TV Advertising Summit virtual by sharing research that he just released uh, less than two weeks ago around connected TV adoption and usage. And I thought, and I do an interview with Bruce, um, I'll do an interview with Bruce to get the conference started. But um, just wanted to tease a couple of quick data points. I think it's all really interesting stuff. But And I don't want to steal any of Bruce's thunder, but um, fascinating that 87% of U.S. TV households now have at least one connected TV device. That's up from 69% five years ago in 2017 and just 38% 10 years ago in 2012. So Bruce has a really great analysis of what types of devices are comprised uh, within that 87% um, penetration number and uh, really breaks it down and shows how those trends have changed also a lot over the last five or 10 years. So wanted to highlight that number and I'll just highlight one other number and then I won't, I don't want to steal any of Bruce's thunder because it's really not going to be a great interview, but um, he shared all the data with me and one other thing is that really popped out is that 67%, two-thirds of households that have a connected TV device have three or more of these devices, including 40% of U.S. homes uh, in, that were surveyed having five or more devices. So uh, pretty deep and wide penetration of CTV devices and I'm not going to say anything more again because Bruce is going to get into all the details next week, but um, definitely adds, I think, a lot of context for why connected TV advertising is as robust as it is right now because we just have advertisers shifting their spending as eyeballs are shifting over to all these connected TVs that have been deployed. Yeah, and um, I'm really looking forward to hearing that data in detail as well. Well, I track Bruce's numbers on on the connected TV devices pretty darn closely. And the funny thing is that uh, when I look at that data, it, 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 it does show that smart TVs are definitely more penetrated now than the streaming media players. Uh, but I'm not sure the usage follows that penetration. And uh, people should, should check out Bruce's session at Will's conference 
to find out exactly why. So uh, pretty interesting data. And just a reminder, on video news, there are links to register for next week's Connected TV Advertising Summit. It's complimentary, so free to sign up. We have over 35 speakers on eight sessions across the two afternoons, June 14th and June 15th next week. And it's, it's really going to be, I think, a lot of great thought leadership and learning for anybody that has a vested interest in Connected TV success. Very good. And uh, the news story that I wanted to talk about this week, Will, I don't think it's so much news as rumor. Well, I know it is rumor, but it's certainly been reported in the news. And that's a rumor that Netflix apparently is thinking of buying Roku. Now, this is to this to me sounds pretty funny. Uh, so the, the way the rumor got started, at least according to Next TV, is that Roku management suddenly closed the window on company employees being able to transact their vested stock. And they, you know, companies usually do this when there's going to be some sort of event or announcement or, you know, something big happening for the company. Uh, that got people talking. And what came out of that now is that there's this rumor that, uh, that Netflix is going to buy Roku. And, and I guess the, the rhyme and reason there is that, of course, Roku has a very advanced advertising platform and is uh, doing advertising insertion, selling ads, working with advertisers, and is, you know, is really doing extremely well in the ad business these days. So I'm guessing that that's where the rumor came from. But it sounds a bit fishy to me, Will. I don't, I don't get the reasons totally why this would happen. I can see why other people would want to buy Roku. So I can see why TCL might want to buy Roku. It's a very close partner of Roku's and it's growing up now into a very big TV manufacturer and would probably like to own its own smart TV platform and have the same sort of advertising business that uh, competitors like Samsung and LG have. But I don't get why Netflix would do it, particularly when Roku was actually spun out of Netflix about 15 years ago, I think. But uh, what do you think? Right. That would be the irony is that, um, as you just said, Roku was actually uh, born within Netflix and then spun out at the very last minute by Netflix. Um, I, I don't know what to make of the rumor, Colin. I, you know, who knows about these things? But, um, you know, the... I guess one piece of logic that would be worth considering is that Netflix has said that it's going to um, launch an ad-supported uh, tier sometime this year, it sounds like. And if they have ambitions to be even more aggressive in the advertising business, they would certainly jumpstart their efforts by acquiring a company like Roku that obviously has a huge footprint in CTV advertising, and as you said, a very robust platform. So um, it would shortcut that, it would uh, get things jump-started, but it, you know, obviously it's just a rumor at this point, so who knows? Yeah, yeah, just a rumor, and uh, perhaps it will always stay that way, who knows? Uh, but anyway, I, I think um, I'd like to talk a, a little bit, Will, about some of the themes that I saw at the streaming Stream TV show. Yeah, other than you being short of breath, tell us the other main things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it didn't last long, thank goodness. But um, 
Yeah, so I guess one of the biggest themes was, oh boy, there was a lot of discussion about fast linear, uh, free ad-supported streaming TV, linear, ser linear services like Pluto TV and Zumo and Samsung TV Plus. These, these services are providing linear-like linear experiences. Lots of discussion about those. And, um, I, you know, one of the things I, I moderated a very, very interesting panel called Moving Fast, What's Next for the Ad Supported Streaming Industry. And I asked my panel of experts about if fast linear could one day take over from broadcast linear and cable, cable linear. And, you know, this is a difficult question for people to ask, of course, because it's a little bit politically charged. And they're there did seem to be quite a lot of hesitancy uh, on the part of the panelists to say that they thought that this could happen. Uh, certainly um, the Roku channel, Ashley, Ashley Hovey, who was on my panel, she didn't think it was going to happen soon. Neither did Will German from Paramount, uh, Paramount uh, Global. He, he didn't think it would happen very soon. And, and neither did Taylor Cyburn of Tubi. But I think uh, Chris Knight of Gusto TV was a little bit more aggressive. He seemed to think that th this was possible. Um, but so, so yeah, there was lots of discussion about linear. We talked uh, on other panels, the fact that Curiosity Stream now has launched a, a virtual linear channel with, I think they've launched it with LG and he's planning on doing a lot more. Uh, they see they see it as a way to promote the service and to derive new um, incremental revenue from that advertising. Um, I think it's gonna. I think a lot of SVOD services are gonna do this well. Um, so I think there's you know exactly what what Curiosity Stream is doing it for is why they will all do it. It's a great way of monetizing on-demand content that's quietly sitting in your library, not being watched very much uh, without. I think impacting your core business model of SVOD, uh, generating extra revenue and generating more interesting interest in the service and building funnels. So that I thought was really interesting and spoke to a sort of general theme of a broadening of the monetization of all video services. So that, that I thought was a very interesting theme of the show. Well, when you talk about fast services, I've thought of them as primarily, and comparing them to broadcast, which I think I'd agree with your three of the four of your panelists that I don't think fasts are going to be overtaking broadcast or cable uh, channels anytime in the near future. But uh, they, they are a very um, valuable model, as you pointed out, to unlock the value of content that's otherwise not being monetized or, or viewed. Um, I, I've thought of it more, I've thought of these fast channels as being more on demand, but when you raise the comparison to broadcast, then that uh, seems to, you know, incorporate the idea that there would be live content within the fast channels. And that's a relatively new phenomenon for fast, I think, isn't it? It certainly is. And that, that said, Will, you know, when I talk to the providers, the people that are actually uh, putting together the streams for uh, for companies, you know. So this this would be people like um, Yahoo Edgecast, or as they're becoming Edgecast, um, they they build streams, and they they tell me, and other other platform providers tell me that these streams can be programmed exactly like a regular 
a broadcast station if you want and you can include live content and and everything else that's included and and you know it is it is happening today and so for example you know there there are plenty of live news channels uh, included in with these fast linear services and they're actually being used for professional sports and uh, there was a very interesting story uh, earlier this year there was a, an SVOD service called Ride Pass and this was launched by the Professional Bull Riders Association and uh, it was basically to cover rodeo rodeo content live rodeos and and there was a bunch of on-demand content and they were selling this. It launched in 2018 and they were selling it for eight bucks a month and, and increased the price to 10 bucks later. Well, they made a pretty radical decision, Will. They decided to shut down the service and have an exclusive channel on Pluto TV. So now you can actually watch the bull rider, the, the rodeos and, the, and all the bull riding and whatever. You can watch those live on the Ride Pass channel on Pluto TV. And Pluto also is hosting all of the on-demand content that was also part of that service. So bottom line here is that uh, live is totally on the table. And uh, I think we're going to increasingly see channels that are programming live into their schedule. So I, I fully expect to see concerts and and all sorts of things being programmed live in with on-demand content so it's not it's not just on demand not just on demand not just video playlists which i think is where fast started uh, you didn't did. answer you didn't answer your own question kyle and if you see fast um competing with broadcast at any point in the near future not you know in the long term but in the near future um i don't think it'll happen anytime in the near future will but actually, one of the panelists, Ashley, I think it was, who mentioned sports as being one of the locks that traditional media has that is very difficult to unpick. That said, it is being picked. And we are seeing the emergence now of live professional sports online. So later this year, uh, Bally Sports is going to be launched. Um, and that's going to be, include the RSNs that were purchased by Sinclair. That'll include a lot, a lot of um, basketball, local basketball, and um, and I think baseball content, baseball games will be included. So it is becoming unpicked. Of course, Amazon has uh, exclusive rights to stream the Thursday night football games. So I do see that un, un, unwinding slowly but surely. And bearing in mind that fast channels can do everything that a traditional channel can do and a heck of a lot more i should say i do think eventually that that will happen but there are some there are some fragmentation issues and ad issues ad experience issues i think that need to get fixed before it can really happen full scale and that'll take a while i think Okay, and you were, again, sharing observations from your attendance at the show, and you had another, I think, observation as well around aggregation. I do, well, yeah. There was lots of discussion about aggregation and aggregators. And um, so there was a panel that was talking about aggregation 
that I tossed a question to about whether we would see consolidation in aggregators. And the panelists generally seem to think that there would be. But there was one panelist, Scott Olachowski, who's the chief product officer at Plex. He didn't think they would. He said, I don't think it's going to happen. I think we're in a world where there's going to be a lot of really exciting competition across the board. And I've got to tell you, I agree with him. What I see, Will, is I see more aggregators, not less. So we're seeing a lot of services now starting, for example, to launch fast linear linear channels to sort of link back to the previous topic. So that's one area of aggregate uh, where we're seeing aggregation expand. We're seeing new TV OSs coming into the market from, for example, TiVo and from Charter and Comcast. And they're going to be aggregating services uh, as, as well. So that no, I don't see any convergence here going on in the aggregator role. I see further complexity, more aggregators. And it sent me wondering, how on earth do you as a consumer pick an aggregator? Because you want, you want help, right? You want help with the complexity of searching all of these services. You want help with the complexity of managing them all, paying for them all, and, and handling all of that. But there are so many places you can turn. You can do it through Roku, you can do it through the Roku channel, you can do it through Amazon Prime channels. Uh, and there's a whole smorgasbord of services that will really want to aggregate. I mean, goodness, Verizon even launched this thing called Hub Plus, and it will manage the billing and, and payment to a whole bunch of SVOD services for you if you want. So this is just another area where just things are just really, really complex and I don't see any convergence yet. Yeah, I agree with you. I don't see convergence either. Um, you know, I think everybody is trying to get as close to the viewer as possible to be able to collect data on usage, to be able to target content and target ads. And I think that argues, as you just said, for more fragmentation rather than less fragmentation. So to your point, it's going to be more and more complicated for viewers to figure their way out and find their way to the specific content that they're looking for, because it's going to be um, fragmented over so many different services and aggregators. Yeah, I agree. And it seems to me that the aggregators that seem to have the best opportunity to help consumers is actually ironically the pay TV operators because for those people that aren't yet as heavily invested in the streaming world as many people are and they still have a pay TV operator, they can get most of the most popular services on their set-top box and they can pay through it through their cable bill and that keeps that, that makes it nice and easy for them, right? So. Ironically, it looks to me like the pay TV operators have a bit of an advantage here over everybody else because they're speaking to an audience that already has a very close relationship with them over video. So, uh, you know, that's a that's one funny uh, item, I think, that uh, will we'll keep the pay TV operators uh, lively with their audience. A little bit of a twist. Uh, yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Well, Colin, was there anything else from the show or did that pretty much capture your um, your experience there or anything from your panel specifically that you wanted to share? 
Well, I'm, I'm going to actually write up my panel, Will, so people can okay. check out some of, the, some of the deeper thoughts. There were just two, two things, the, two other things that I'll mention real quick. One is just there's just a lot of complexity in the CTV market. One of them is the technical complexity, and I've, I've already mentioned you know, the fact that the, um, the aggregators, there's no consolidation there. I don't see consolidation in the TV OSs either. Those are, you know, they were, we're getting more of those, not less. So that's one area. But it's also a hellishly complex business environment as well. Rick Howe, who's um, the TV doctor, he asked a very interesting question. He noticed that Yellowstone, the new episodes of Yellowstone are available on Paramount, Paramount Plus, but the library episodes are available on Peacock. And he was asking panelists, well, why doesn't, uh, why doesn't um, Paramount point to the library episodes in, on Peacock if people want to watch more Yellowstone, if they've started watching the new episodes? Uh, and of course, this we know why it's not happening. It's because of everybody's in competition with everybody else and they want people to stay on their service and they don't want them to leave. But uh, it's, it's an interesting question because if you really want to help your customer out to find content, maybe you need to be Switzerland a little bit and uh, help, them, help them out, right? Fair enough. And I guess another question is, how did the early er, episodes of Yellowstone get onto Peacock in the first place? Is it an NBC Universal production or what's the bad? There's a backstory there for sure as well. No, no, I think it's not. I think it was actually licensed to them by <laughs> by <Okay>. Paramount. So, <laughs> so I don't know. I may maybe I've got that backwards, but uh, that that's probably how it happened. Well, there's just TV companies doing what they always do, which is licensing yeah. their library content, and uh, you know uh, their licensed partners. Why? Right? So why wouldn't they point? point to each other if they've got the other episodes i don't know it's uh, something that is going to get worked out i'm sure in the years to come well we know that's how netflix got its start by basically being able to license all that valuable content from uh studios and tv networks and then they pulled it back as they launched their own direct to consumer services that's that's you got that right will that's exactly how they got started netflix's business is definitely built on television but uh you know i think we're just about out of time today i think we are out of time colin so good uh chatting good to hear your observations and again um next week will be video news's connect tv advertising summit hope that we'll have many of our listeners in attendance and until then uh thanks for joining us on this week's edition of inside the stream Inside the Stream is a production of in-screen media and video news, all rights reserved.